0: Welcome, dear pilgrims, back to the world of Narnia. Today is our second exploration of C.S. Lewis's timeless set of stories. And if you've missed episode 10 uh, about entering Narnia with Plato and St. Therese of Lisieux, well, there's something to look forward to after this episode. Today's content, though, will have a different sort of feel, because today is very much about a personal encounter. It's often been said that the character of Aslan, that great kingly lion, is one of the best portrayals of Jesus Christ in any work of fiction. And those of you who are familiar with the books will probably agree that every scene with Aslan is profound and moving, depicting what a real encounter with Jesus of Nazareth would actually have been like. Over and against more popular portrayals of Jesus today as just a nice guy or a moral teacher, Aslan, like the real Jesus of history, just cannot be categorised in any box. He is at once compassionate and yet ferocious, friendly and yet kingly. When Susan Pevensey asks Mr. Beaver whether Aslan was safe, Mr. Beaver replies, Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. It is for reasons like this that Aslan gives us plenty of material to explore a very forgotten idea in Christianity today. The fear of the Lord fear of the Lord? What does that even mean? Some of you may remember hearing about the fear of the Lord in scripture passages like Proverbs 9, which reminds us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. If you've been raised a Catholic, you might recall that the fear of the Lord is one of the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, along with other gifts like wisdom, courage, and so on. This episode, we will be exploring this notion of the fear of the Lord in quite some depth bringing 2,000 years of wisdom to restore its rightful place in modern Christianity. Believe it or not, there are at least four ways we can distinctly understand the fear of the Lord, and all of them have their place in the spiritual life. Midway through this episode, I'm going to be reading you a longer Aslan passage from Narnia Book 3, which illustrates multiple ways to understand the fear of the Lord. For now, I want to quickly touch on the first and most obvious definition. Namely, the fear of damnation. As this is probably what most people think of when they hear the words, fear of the Lord. But is it actually okay or even virtuous for a Christian to fear damnation? Most of us are probably familiar with the classical medieval images of fiery torment and eternal hell. And the Bible certainly is not shy from depicting some pretty vivid depictions of hell, Gehenna. And Jesus himself spoke more about hell than anyone else in the Bible. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. Now, modern intellectuals like the New Atheists label such talk of hell as hogwash and even emotional abuse. Indeed, the modern man finds it difficult to reconcile a loving God with the coexistence of hell. Now, this moral objection is a fair one and deserves much more exploration than this little episode can grant. However, I will say this for now. In this spiritual life, there is still an appropriate context for the fear of damnation. After all, it is totally sane to fear something which is directly contrary to our nature. To use a less controversial example, we are oxygen breathing beings that are designed to live on land and not underwater. Therefore we should fear falling into the sea and drowning, because then we'd be in a context which was directly contrary to our nature as land living oxygen breathing beings. Likewise. We were created to love God and to flourish within His laws. This is the very essence of our human nature. But to intentionally live as though God doesn't exist and to thwart His laws through sin, this is contrary to our very nature. Damnation, then, is the final reality of a soul who chooses to live contrary to his nature. Hence, for Christ and his church to warn someone about the possibility of damnation is similar to a mother warning her child to be careful around the swimming pool. The fear the mother instills in her child is necessary, but for a far greater good than simply preventing her child from drowning. Rather, the mother's greater intention is for her child to thrive and flourish in a way fitting to a human being that lives for another 80 odd years or so. So... While it is normal for us to have a fear of damnation, it is hardly a good and lasting motivation to have a relationship with God. It may be a good starting understanding of the fear of the Lord, but it is still miles away from the type of fear of the Lord that possessed countless saints and holy people and martyrs down the centuries. So, we will now turn to three more ways we can understand the fear of the Lord. And I want to introduce these with that passage from Narnia book 3, The Horse and His Boy. I probably won't need to give too much context to this excerpt as it sort of fills in the details as it goes. All you need to know is that the main character, Shasta, is a little orphan who grew up outside Narnia and had never heard or met Aslan before. At the start of this passage, Shasta is midway through a quest, slowly trekking on horseback across a desert at night he is alone exhausted and lost Being very tired and having nothing inside him Shasta felt so sorry for himself that the tears rolled down his cheeks What put a stop to all of this was a sudden fright Shasta discovered that someone or somebody was walking beside him It was pitch dark and he could see nothing And the thing, or person, was going so quietly that he could hardly hear any footfalls. What he could hear was breathing. His invisible companion seemed to breathe on a very large scale, and Shester got the impression that it was a very large creature. And he had come to notice this breathing so gradually that he had really no idea how long it had been there. It was a terrible shock. Then there suddenly came a deep, rich sigh out of the darkness beside him. That couldn't be his imagination. He now felt the hot breath of that sigh on his chilly left hand. He went on at walking pace, and the unseen companion walked and breathed beside him. At last, he could bear it no longer. Who are you? he said, barely above a whisper. One who has waited long for you to speak, said the thing. Its voice was not loud, but very large and very deep. Are you, are you a giant? asked Shasta. You might call me a giant, said the large voice, but I am not like the creatures you call giants. I can't see you at all, said Shasta, after staring very hard. You're not something dead, are you? "'Oh, please, please do go away. What harm have I ever done to you? "'Oh, I am the most unluckiest person in the whole world.'" Once more, he felt the warm breath of the thing on his hand and face. "'There,' it said, "'that is not the breath of a ghost. "'Now tell me your sorrows.'" Shasta was a little reassured by the breath. So he told the voice how he had never known his real father or mother and had been brought up sternly by the fishermen. Then he told the story of his escape and how they were chased by lions and forced to swim for their lives and then all of their dangers in Tashban and about his night among the tombs and how the beasts howled at him out of the desert. Then he told about the heat and thirst of their desert journey and how they were almost at their goal when another lion chased them and wounded Aravis. And also how very long it had been since he had anything to eat. "'I do not call you unfortunate,' said the large voice. "'Don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions?' "'There was only one lion,' said the voice. "'What on earth do you mean? "'I've just told you there were at least two lions that first night, and—' "'There was only one, but he was swift of foot. "'I was the lion who forced you to join with Aravis. "'I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead.' I was the lion who drove the jackals from you as you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you should reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion, you do not remember, who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to shore where a man sat, wakeful at midnight, ready to receive you. Then it was you who wounded Aravis, Shasta said. It was I. But what for? Child, said the voice. I am telling you your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. Who are you? asked Shasta. Myself, said the voice, very deep and low, so that the earth shook. And again, Myself loud and clear and gay. And then the third time, myself, Myself. whispered so softly you could hardly hear it. And yet it seemed to come from all around you as if leaves rustled with it. Shasta was no longer afraid that the voice belonged to something that would eat him, nor that it was the voice of a ghost. But a new and different sort of trembling came over him. Yet he felt glad too. The mist was turning from black to grey and from grey to white. Somewhere ahead he heard birds singing. He knew the night was over at last. He could see the mane and ears and head of his horse quite clearly now. A golden light fell on them from the left. He thought it was the sun, but then he turned and he saw, pacing beside him, taller than a horse was a lion. The horse did not seem to be afraid of it or else it could not see it. It was from the lion that the light came no one ever saw anything more terrible or more beautiful. Luckily, Shasta had lived all of his life far too south of Calamon to have heard the tales that were whispered in Tashban about a dreadful Narnian demon that appeared in the form of a lion. And of course, he knew none of the stories about Aslan, the great lion, the son of the Emperor over the sea, the king above all high kings in Narnia. But, after one glance at the lion's face, he slipped out of the saddle and fell at its feet. He couldn't say anything, but then he didn't want to say anything, and he knew he needn't say anything. What a beautiful passage, right? This description of Shasta's first encounter with Aslan is almost sacred and it's certainly one of my favourite passages in all the Narnia books. But I chose this scene because it offers us a springboard to discuss three other ways of understanding the fear of the Lord. The first way Shasta experiences this fear might be called something like the fear of the unknown. Remember that Shasta is not from Narnia and doesn't know about Aslan at all. When the voice first walks beside him, he was terrified and wondered whether the presence was a friend or a foe. He had no previous experience of the voice to console himself with and hence was understandably unsettled. Okay, might I suggest that this sort of fear of the unknown is actually a healthy sign of our growth in faith? I mean, first of all, it's entirely natural for someone new to religion to be quite afraid of the idea of God After all, if God were real, then suddenly the entire focus and foundation of our lives shift, as does our moral compass, and that can be quite an unsettling thought. Further, even for a mature Christian, God will always remain beyond our grasp, beyond us both in his presence and in his ways. Despite what we think we know of him, God will always remain the supreme mystery Every time we think we can grasp God, he'll elude us again, breaking out of our safe and neat categories, stretching our faith and deepening our love. As Aslan once explains to young Lucy, for every year you grow bigger, you will also find me bigger. Let's never be tempted to domesticate God or tame him into something he's not, for that is not the God revealed by Jesus Christ. Rather, when God calls us to embrace the unknown, Embrace also the necessary fear that may well come with it. The second type of fear of the Lord we can glean from this passage is what is normally called reverent fear or holy fear. This is what finally prompts Shasta to dismount his horse and silently fall at the feet of Aslan. This type of fear isn't characterized by anxiety so much as it is characterized by humility. It is the type of fear where, in the best possible way, we become aware of how small and insignificant we are before the beauty and majesty and power of God. It is called reverent fear because it dispels our pride and draws us into a deeper respect for the person of God. Wonder and awe would be a good synonym to describe this type of fear too. For us flokes, a rough analogy of reverent fear would be something like being in the presence of an incredibly beautiful woman, where we are terrified and humbled and captivated at the same time, and, like Shasta, are often rendered quite speechless. <laughs> Indeed, words are futile before such a presence. See, Shasta knew that he had done nothing to deserve the attention or even help of Aslan. In fact, he hadn't even been aware of Aslan's hand acting throughout his life, or should I say poor, acting throughout his life. It was all grace. But having now been made conscious of it, he could do little else but adore his king with his whole being. Would there be a time you felt such a reverent fear before the Lord? It is certainly a gift you can ask for today. It's often noted that postmodern Christianity has swung a little too much to the sort of personal individual friendship with God at the expense of a healthy reverence before the lordship or kingship of God. But remember, Jesus is both Lord and Lover, and one of the reasons why Narnia stirs us so much today is because the figure of Aslan reminds us that Christ is both. If you're enjoying this episode of The Myth Pilgrim, do consider sharing it with your friends so that we can together encounter God veiled in our favourite tales. I'm always also open to your feedback and ideas too, so feel free to contact me on the Myth Pilgrim Facebook page or through the website at themythpilgrim.com. Cheers! The final definition of the fear of the Lord is in many ways the crowning jewel of them all, and by the grace of God is the type of fear that every Christian should be desiring. It is characterized as the fear of hurting the one we love, namely God. It is the fear that can only exist within a loving relationship with God, for the content of the fear is precisely proportional to the love that we have for him. It is this fear that inspires a Christian to become horrified at even the smallest sin, not because they fear punishment, but because they know how much this sin offends God, their beloved. It is also this type of fear that allows so many saints and martyrs to become obedient to God, even to the point of death. The thought of not doing the will of their beloved and not following him to the cross becomes simply unbearable, so great is their love for him. Indeed, this final type of fear, inflamed by love for God, is what inspires true conversion, repentance and sanctity. Oftentimes, I witness this effect at work within people after the Sacrament of Reconciliation, especially if they haven't been for a long time. Through the sacrament, people encounter something of what Shasta may have experienced that day in the desert, a God who had loved them all their lives and continues to love them undeservedly. While we aren't privy to any more interactions between Shasta and Aslan in the book, you can imagine how such an encounter would have inspired a deep, lasting love within Shasta. If you want a more fleshed out description in Narnia, of this final type of fear, I suggest reading the passage in Prince Caspian, when Lucy finally sees Aslan again. Notice how little Lucy is totally secure in her love for Aslan, and yet, when she senses her actions might have upset him, she becomes quite remorseful. What's beautiful is that despite being aware of her shortcomings, she's never concerned about being punished by Aslan, but rather is concerned about how she might have displeased him. We won't have time to read this passage, unfortunately, in this episode, but I'll be sure to leave a link to it in the show notes and on the website. As we approach the end of this episode, I want to stress again that all four descriptions of fear of the Lord have their rightful place in the spiritual life, irrespective of how long we've been walking with God. However, if during this episode you've noticed one of the fears over-dominating your relationship with God, or you feel a deep yearning to be gifted with another type of fear, bring that into prayer. For this episode, I couldn't think of a more practical, practical pilgrim exercise than boldly asking the Holy Spirit for the gift of fear of the Lord. Perhaps it could become a focus of your prayer this week. Aside from this, another suggestion could be to pray with Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2, in which God says, This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Perhaps you feel that your pride and a certain apathy towards sin has distorted your love for God? If that's you, meditating on this Isaiah passage can help remind you how God is particularly drawn towards the contrite and humble person, one who is happy to ask for the gift of repentance. Mm. So there's some suggestions for you. Okay, until next time, dear pilgrims, journey forth, take care, and God bless.